This is a presentation of LifePoint Church. Our mission is to make gospel-centered disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information, please visit sharethelife.org. As, as Craig shared, this series that we're in right now is important. And it's not important just because it's what we're preaching and stuff in church matters. Uh, it's important because of how the power and goodness and truth of the Word of God is significant for our current cultural moment. Our current cultural moment does not value anybody taking their worldview seriously and taking the time to thoughtfully consider and assemble the pieces of their worldview. So, you know, we've been using this illustration that you can see in the graphic that a worldview is like a puzzle, and I've got the puzzle here, the puzzle, that we've dumped out a few times. Um, if, if, if puzzles are a good way to think about worldview, then the current cultural moment, it wants our worldview to stay just like this, in the box, in pieces, unassembled, and so that we miss the big picture. And today, I'd like to help us untangle from God's word, how do we get to this place for our worldview, where things are going so badly in our world that preachers are dumping puzzles out on the floor? I'm not gonna do that today, don't worry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. How did we get here? How has God's image been marred in us? What went wrong? And as we turn to God's word, we are going to get a close-up picture of what exactly went wrong. And then we're going to look at what keeps going wrong. And in our scripture reading today, we'll be engaging what is probably a familiar story for you from Genesis chapter 3, the fall. But today, I'd like for us to listen for something in particular. And that's why I wanted to give an introduction before we have our scripture reading today. I'd like you to listen for something in the details of the dialogue of this narrative. In particular, listen for the things that God says and listen for how the serpent, who, spoiler, that's Satan, it's the devil, serpent, Listen for how the serpent twists God's words in the conversation he has with the man and the woman. I want you to listen in particular to answer this question. How true are the things that the serpent says? How true are the things that the serpent says? Does he say things that are partly true, mostly true, completely true? Are they all false? I want you to listen for that question. How true are the things that the serpent says? Be thinking about that in the details of today's passage. You know, our passage, our reading today is a little bit longer than normal. And uh, while we certainly aren't gonna cover all of the details of this narrative today, um, I just wanna share the reason we're doing a longer reading, even though we're not covering everything, is because in particular for this series and as we look at how, how God's word is significant for our current cultural moment, we can go deeper if we take a bigger chunk today to know how what happened in the garden applies to our current cultural moment and situation. The scripture reading for today is from Genesis 2, 15 through 17, and Genesis 3, 1 through 24. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, you will sh I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, how true are the things that the serpent says in that narrative? It's a really important question for us to ask if we're ever going to get our own worldview puzzles assembled and see the big picture. So I want you to keep thinking about that question. We're going to come back to it in a few minutes. Um, but today, as we look to understand what went wrong in the garden, 
and answer this question about, about the, the serpent and his deceit and, and lies. As we try to understand this, we're going to be looking at one of the worldview pieces of the Christian worldview that, that it's kind of fascinating. Both Christian and non-Christian scholars alike have said that this is the one piece of it that can be unequivocally, I can't say that word, unequivocally proven. And that is simply this that people are not, by default, basically good. We all have a bent towards selfishness, that the Bible, that Scripture, that, that Christians that we call sin. You know, it's interesting. If, if our worldview is a puzzle, and if we're looking at, you know, we're talking about how we're trying to get the edge pieces put together in, in this series, and we're trying to, to establish kind of the outside of the puzzle. If worldview is a puzzle, and, and, and if these other ideas that don't come from Scripture, we're unpacking Scripture's worldview, the big picture of the world that Scripture paints for us. If, if, if we try to believe this idea that people have no sin, that we are all good, and that some of us make mistakes and, 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 and make evil choices, it's sort of like trying to fit a puzzle piece like this into a puzzle with pieces like this. <laughs> Zach, last week, he mixed the two puzzles together, and I, again, I'm sorry about that. Some of you, I know, that created some, some, some chaos in your hearts. Uh, but truly, if, if we try to drop in the idea that, that there is no sin in the world, it's sort of like trying to build this puzzle with this puzzle piece. It just doesn't fit. And usually, when, when we do that, it's because we, we, we are giving up thinking about it and we can't figure out what went wrong. We just toss that piece in. I'll grab that other piece so we don't lose it. We just toss that piece in. That's what it's like if we try to deny the reality that there is a problem in the world. So what went wrong? How has God's image in us been marred? Now, as we get there, I think it's important that we review the series a little bit. This series builds, each week builds upon each other, so I want to encourage you to go back and listen if you need to. But remember, week one, we talked about God's image, and we answered the question, what is God like? But before we even did that, we looked at this question of, of what does it mean to flourish as human? That ultimately is the question that is at the basis of, of every worldview. How do we flourish? And we said that as we unpack this series and look at what God's word says about worldview, we'll understand that we flourish best as we embrace his design, God's design. And, and then we looked at, well, what is he like? What is the creator like? What is God like? And that was our focus in week one. And we learned that God is the center of the story. He's the heart. This isn't our story. It's not mine or yours. Even on Mother's Day, this story is still about God. And, and, and so we, we looked at that, that, that God's the center of the story. We talked about how God is holy, how he is personal. He's not human, but he is a person. He is personal and is a personal God, and it's incredible. We see that in God's word, and we looked at how God is good. Remember that even as we look at the Old Testament God that, that some have, have, have mischaracterized as not being gracious or merciful, we saw that as God unpacks his goodness that there is a scale that's weighted. His mercy is greater than even judgment. He is good. 
And then last week in week two, Zach preached and looked at what it means that we are made in that image that we are made in God's likeness. And, and, and we looked at how that means that we reflect what he's like and we represent him and we rule under his authority. And, and all of those things define our position in the world, our purpose in the world, and our value in the world. Now, this is important to keep in mind because today as we look at what went wrong, as we look at this drama in the, the Garden of Eden and look at these lies that the serpent was spinning, we need to understand how the things that went wrong, how they impact all of these items, our position in the world, our purpose in the world, and our value in the world. So how has God's image in us been marred? What went wrong? You know, the man and the woman, a summary of this could be that the man and the woman, they heard and believed and then acted on the lie that they could flourish somehow outside of God's design. This sin brought significant consequences and it marred but did not remove the image of God in them. And so we're going to look at, look at how it has done that. I want to invite you to open your Bibles. This is a good day to have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 3. And again, thank you, Bethany, for reading this whole chapter for us. The first thing that we'll see, if we're looking to this chapter to understand how God's image has been marred in us, we'll see our position has changed. Last week, Zach talked about how our position before God, you know, how, how, how we're made in his image. God is the creator, and we also get to, get to create, but we create using what he has made. And, and we see now that our position has actually flipped. We have tried to take his place. And we see outlined in Genesis chapter 3 that our position has flipped, including both physically and relationally. Physically, we see that the sin of the man and the woman, it actually caused them to be removed from the flourishing within the garden and the garden's provision and protection. We saw that at the end of this chapter, verses 23 and 24. God drives them out of the garden. They must now live outside of God's circle of blessing, this place that he made that was, was a physical place for them to thrive and flourish. The man and the woman are removed from that safety and now they must endure and live in the danger and challenge of the wilderness. And that's a big deal. But it's maybe not even as big a deal as the reality that their position relationally was flipped. We see this both in their relationship with God and their relationship with each other. You know, these relationships were, were once positioned for intimacy and harmony, but they ceased after the fall. They ceased to be intimate and harmonious. Instead, they become marked with fear and shame and conflict. And they have this with each other. Look at verse 7. Look what happened the moment they ate the fruit. Then the eyes of both, the man and the woman, were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together. And they hid behind their loincloths. Their relationship that was once marked earlier, we saw in, in Genesis chapter 2 and even chapter 1, it, it was once marked by this, this exclamation of, oh, this woman is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now they're hiding from each other. 
They've got shame about their nakedness. And then if we look at verse 16, we see unpacked even more clearly what's happened in their relationship. Verse 16, God is addressing the woman and in the second half of this verse he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, it's a little bit tricky. Some of your, 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 your uh, translations may read that it says that your desire shall be for your husband. Some say contrary to your husband. Uh, depending on what you have, it may be something else. Um, the translation that is common here that your desire shall be for your husband, it's often misunderstood in our day and age. God is not saying that as a punishment to Eve for her sin that you're gonna finally be attracted to your husband. That's not what that meant. I just wanna be clear here. When he says that your desire shall be for your husband, it is like a, it will be to, to, to rule over him, to try to overtake him. Your desire shall be uh, for the position that he has. And, and, and that's why this, this translation that we see in some places, your desire shall be contrary. It's, it's actually like a word that has conflict. You know, it's like instead of being together, moving in the same direction, their desires will conflict. Now, just a real quick survey. Has anybody ever experienced this? You, you can be honest, this is a safe place. Okay, all right, all right, I see three of you. Okay, good. Um, their relationship with each other flipped from intimacy and joy and, and, and this, this beautiful picture in the garden to something that is, is now full of shame it's full of conflict, and we see that also in their relationship with God. Look at verses 8 through 10 with me. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now they heard the sound. They knew this was coming. They knew what that sound was because they had been in the garden with their maker. They had an intimacy enjoying this place, this paradise that God had made for them. But they heard the sound of him coming, and what did they do? They hid themselves. The Lord God called him and said, where are you? He knew the answer. He didn't need to ask, but he called out and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. The man is afraid of his creator because of shame at his nakedness. He goes from this, this, this friendship with God strolling in the garden to this, this broken intimacy in that place. Relationally, things were flipped. We see here that though God is the center of the story and our position has never been that of creator, we see that in the garden, the man and the woman had this relational intimacy with him and with each other and that has been turned on its head. Our position has been flipped by our sin. It's been just turned around, which has ripple effects on the purpose that man and woman have on this earth. Our purpose has now been hindered. Creation, the object of man's vocational calling, is now cursed. Itself is cursed. We see this. The ground is cursed. The serpent is cursed. The, the, the plants now produce thistles and thorns. Our position has been flipped, and our purpose is now hindered. Now, the good work that was once there for the man and the woman to do in fulfillment 
of their calling and purpose, it now becomes toilsome labor. Anybody ever experienced a job that was toilsome labor? We've all been there. The earth and the plants, as we see in verses 17 and 18, they're cursed. And it's interesting. Scholars point out here that God doesn't curse the man and the woman. He does curse the ground, and he curses, he curses the serpent. We see this even as a reflection of God's goodness and mercy. But the earth and the plants are cursed. Non-human bits of creation are going to bear the consequences of our fall. And we see that later on. In Romans, we see the reality that all of creation is groaning and is waiting for redemption. But that's not all. Look at verse 16, the first part. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You know, we see that their purpose in subduing the earth has been hindered by their sin, but we also see their purpose and calling to fill the earth and multiply has been hindered as well. Not even today's state-of-the-art advanced technology can undo the reality that, that becoming pregnant and staying pregnant and delivering a baby and raising kids now is fraught with danger and pain and risk that the man and the woman never knew before. I know our story. I know we have, we have a couple of babies that we've never got to hold. I know some of your stories. And I know that the weight and the burden of this reality sometimes feels too great to bear. I want to tell you that there is hope. There is hope. Though these consequences here, and we see this, God addresses the man and the woman. These consequences are addressed specifically to the man. He, he talks to the man about the, the, the ground being cursed and, and the toilsome labor he will go through in order to make bread and raise, raise fruit from the earth. And he talks to the woman about the pain of childbearing. Though these things, these consequences are addressed to, to individually to the man and to the woman, their burden will be carried by all of us. This this, these consequences are for us all. There's not some like magical thing, ladies, if you go to garden, it will produce thorns and thistles for you too. Men, I know that though we may never understand the, the physical burden of bearing children, we know the heartache and the pain of loss. These consequences impact all of us. So how has God's image been marred? Our position physically in the garden and relationally with each other and before God has been flipped. Our purpose has been hindered. But you want to hear something amazing? Our value remains unchanged. Last week, Zach unpacked the reality and the joy that, that being made in God's image means that God is the one who assigns value to a human. 
We don't assign value, God does, and our value remains unchanged. Not even our sin could mar the value that God has assigned to us. We see this if you flip over to Genesis chapter nine, just a few pages in your Bible. We see this there in Genesis nine, six, and seven. And just a quick tour of, of, of Genesis Bible history, the earth, things got really, really bad after the garden, like real bad, so bad that God said, we're starting over. And he sent the flood, this is Noah's Ark and the flood, and, and he grabbed the one family that was faithful to God and put him in a boat with a bunch of animals, and then the flood came, and everybody and everything perished except for those that were on the boat. And then afterwards, the flood's over, and the earth is getting this reset, and God tells Noah and his family a couple of things. He does something really important here. In Genesis 9, he, he, after the flood, he reinstates his purpose for mankind. We see that here, that, that in verse 7, he says, go, multiply, fill the earth. He talks about this, this new dread that will fall upon the animals. They've all been pretty buddy-buddy as they've been in the ark together. I imagine that, that they got to know each other over all that time. But God says, I'm going to put a fear of, of man upon the animals because you are back to ruling and reigning over the earth in my place. He reinstates their purpose, and then he gives this, this command. He doesn't give all 10 commands here. That comes later. He gives this command not to murder, and the foundational ethic of this command after the flood, which was brought about by our sin, which started in the garden, the, the foundational ethic of this command is the value of people that is assigned by God who are made in his image. Friends, our, our value remains unchanged even by our sin. Even though God says our rebellion to him has, has made us enemies of him, he still sees value in us. Now, some this week have questioned the wisdom of preaching the fall of man on Mother's Day. And that's a, that's a good thing to question. <laughs> Here's... Here's my answer for that. First of all, nobody understands the fallenness of mankind better than moms because you all have had to put up with us. <laughs> you have seen us at our worst. You have navigated our sinfulness and our, 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 our evil little hearts in ways that nobody else on this earth will fully understand except for the moms. So moms... Moms understand the fallenness of man. But here's, here's the other thing. I believe that we can look to moms if we want to understand the depth of God's great love for us despite our sin. Because it doesn't make any sense that we could rebel against God and betray him and then crucify his son when he comes to save us later, thousands of years later. It doesn't make any sense that God would still love us. If you think about this from a worldly perspective, it makes no sense. But moms, the kind of love you have for your children, the kind of love that you have that, that is still there no matter what horrible decisions they make. We can look to the love of a mother to understand the depth of God's love that would still look to us and see us as valuable in his sight despite our great sin. 
we can look to moms to understand the reality of God's love and the hope that it brings. So, how has God's image in us been marred by our sin? First, we see our position's been flipped. Our purpose has been hindered, yet our value remains unchanged. God's love is still there. He has still made us in his image. We are still valuable in his sight. This, this is what went wrong. These are the implications on a big picture level of our sin. But I told you that wasn't the only question we were going to be asking today is what went wrong. What continues to go wrong? What keeps going wrong today? Because if we look around, we'll see that, that even though our value remains unchanged before God, this world is still a mess. Our worldviews are still just this pile of pieces. What keeps going wrong? And this comes back to the question that I asked you to consider during the scripture reading. How true are the things that the serpent says? Uh, pastor and author John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, he gives a really helpful and insightful unpacking of, of, of understanding the, the implications of what happened in the garden. He points out, especially as we look to Genesis 3, the first six verses, and you can flip back there in your Bible, we're going to be looking at the first six verses now. He, he points out in particular that the drama that we see unfold here and the deceitfulness of the serpent, that continues to play out day by day in my life and in yours. He points out that this didn't happen by accident either. The serpent, the devil, the evil one, he seeks, Jesus identified his mission in John 10, he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He started here in Genesis 3, and he is continuing today. It is a purposeful, intentional effort that all of our lives feel. The serpent's lies in Genesis chapter 3 are powerful and effective because they either are mostly true or they are true, the things that he says sometimes are true, but they're missing part of the truth. And so we see as we look at the first six verses here that, that the serpent has two goals for his deception. He is trying to get people to do two things. There are two goals, and I want to unpack these today so that we know how to walk forward and, and assemble our worldview in a way that can embrace the hope of Jesus, which is coming. So the, the, the two goals that the serpent has in his deception is he wants to get people first to seize autonomy from God. Look at verse 1 with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he begins by questioning the one thing that God, the one boundary God put up, and he's trying to push the, the man and the woman to seize autonomy from God and toss aside the one boundary that he placed. Now, if you notice, look at his first lie right here. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? How much of that lie is true? How much of what he said there is true? If you look closely, you'll see that if you change one word at the end, 
He says, you, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? If you change any tree to that tree, the statement's true. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of that one tree? Yep, he did. The story's over. <laughs> no, he changed one thing. He took God's words and twisted them by changing one thing in that sentence. He goes on. There's more lies here. Verses 4 and 5. We see the serpent's second lie. It says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. <laughs> if you eat of that tree, you won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This lie, the serpent, he, he tells, he's, he actually says something that's true. He says that God knows that, that when you eat of, of this, this tree, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And God actually affirmed that later on. I mean, he, he, he says in verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. That part was true. He actually said something true. But the lie was in leaving out the rest of it, that <laughs> for them to sin against God would actually make them maybe more like God in knowing good and evil, but would make them more like the serpent in seizing autonomy away from God. They believe this, thinking that the fruit would be helpful, would be good. And, and in tricking them in this way and getting them to seize autonomy from God, we see Satan's second goal accomplished. And that is this, his goal to redefine good and evil apart from God's word. He knows if he can get the people to take autonomy from God and then redefine the, the very nature of good and evil apart from what God says, he will have them in his hand. They set aside God's design. Look at verse six. You can see this like, this redefining happen as, as the woman and the man are standing there considering this. They set aside God's design and tried to flourish in another way. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, don't know what kind of tree it was, but it looked good, it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They did this together. They redefined what was good. They redefined what would make them happy, what would help them flourish, and they redefined it apart from God's word. They set aside God's design for their flourishing and what it meant for them to be like God. The irony here is they were already more like God than anything else in all of creation because only the man and the woman bear God's image or created in his likeness. And they redefined what it meant to be like God. And they said, we want to be like God in this other way, apart from God's design for us. John Mark Comer, his, his thesis of the book that I mentioned, Live No Lies, it's really helpful for us for understanding how these two lies, 
These two bits of deception that the, the, the serpent is trying to get us to believe these lies so that we'll seize autonomy from God and start redefining good and evil apart from God's word. He unpacks how they fit into the broad picture of our worldview. And, and, and this was so good. I wanted to share it with us because I think it can help us as we move forward to untangle some of the mess that, that these lies and our choices in sin have made of of our world and our worldview. John Mark Homer observes that deceptive ideas from the devil, from the serpent, they play to disordered desires of ours. You know, God has actually given us the desire to flourish and to be happy, and, and he's given us a path and a way there. But our, our, our desire, he, Satan uses that desire and actually ironically twists it, uses it, and so we pursue things besides God. These deceptive ideas play to disordered desires of our flesh. You'll see that throughout the scripture. It talks about the desires of our flesh. It's our desires apart from God and his design. And these are normalized in sinful society or out in the world. How does the fall fit into the big picture of our worldview? Deceptive ideas play to our disordered desires, which are then normalized in sinful society. Now that can happen within the church. That can happen in the broad context of the whole world. This is happening day by day. And so I want to invite you to start asking the question that we were asking of this passage at the very beginning of the things that you believe and encounter day by day. How true is that? If we can undo these deceptive ideas that, that Jesus says that the devil is the father of all lies, that he, he's the source of all lies, that this, this lie that we unpack in Genesis is sort of like the, it, it's the, the lie that begins all deception. If we can begin to untangle these deceptive ideas and start asking, how true is that? How true is that thing that I believe, that I've believed for a long time? And then start holding our beliefs up to, to what Scripture says. It'll change the way we interact day by day. It'll change the way we understand our desires. We all have disordered desires, whether, whether it's, it's how we invest our time or, or, or how we choose to feed our bodies or, 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 or how we, we engage sexually. We all have disordered desires that we then normalize because we have, we have fallen prey to this deception and we have redefined good and evil, not on God's terms, but on our terms. So I want you to start asking this question. How true is that? That thing that I believe? That desire that I have? Should I, should I be entertaining that desire? Is it a, a godly desire or is it a disordered desire? I want to invite you to start asking this question. Let's untangle these lies. Now the reason we can do this and I don't want to step into other lanes here in other weeks that are coming up, but the reason that we, we can take these steps into untangling the work of Satan is because we have a God who loves us. And he's made a way for all that has gone wrong that we've looked at today to be made right. Right? 
He can restore every one of your disordered desires. He can restore a society that doesn't embrace evil and make it so it doesn't embrace evil anymore. He can do this and he has a plan to do this. He is good and he loves you. And you know, I wanna, I wanna close today challenging us to untangle these lies but inviting us to consider something that is 100% true. And this is something that I, I tell my kids this a lot. I, my, my little girl who I snuggle with almost every morning, we have this conversation. And I say to her, I say, do you know why I love you? And she knows the answers by now. She says, you love me because I'm your daughter. I said, yeah, I love you because you belong to me. And I say, is there anything that you could do that would make me love you anymore? She goes, no. Is there anything that, that you could do that would make me love you any less? She says, no. My friends, we have a savior and a creator who still sees the value in you because you are made in his image. And no matter what you are going through right now, his love is so great that, that, that there, there are lies out there about how much your God loves you. You may be tempted to believe some of these deceptive ideas about God and his relationship to you and his love for you. I want you to know he loves you not because you're, you're so awesome. He loves you because you're his. He made you. You can't do anything that would make him love you less, and you can't accomplish anything that would make him love you more. His love for you is expressed in the person of Jesus. And we're going to unpack over the next few weeks what exactly that looks like. But I want you to know, if you want to receive this kind of love from your maker, all you need to do is surrender to Jesus and say, I want to belong to you. I'm done with the lies. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to pray with you through that. My friends, Let's embrace the love of our Father in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, we have managed to turn things upside down here. Yet your love remains, your mercy is greater, and the greatest truth in this broken world It's evident in that you sent Jesus to save us. God, I pray today that if there's anybody here that needs to know anew, or maybe for the first time, of your great love, I pray that you would, <laughs> that you would send your spirit. I pray that we would know your great love for us. Help us set aside the lies. Help us embrace the truth of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
This has been a presentation of LifePoint Church. It is our greatest desire that every person would trust Jesus Christ as the leader of their lives and the forgiver of their sins. If you would like to make this decision today or find out more, please visit sharethelife.org.